And now, once again, this morning, I would like to draw your attention to the book of Micah. Micah being one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. A book like Micah can often be a a challenge for us to read through, to study. But it's a challenge, I think, in a good way. It challenges us to examine our own lives, our need for the Lord God, and of our need especially for repentance, forgiveness, and a Savior. So this morning we will be looking at chapter 3. The third chapter is really three mini prophecies in one on the same theme. It's the second cycle of Micah's prophecies here in Judah. And as we look at this entire chapter, we'll see the whole point that Micah is making. Micah chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them, and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us. That as we look into your word, we would see the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would see ourselves and our own need for Christ and that we would follow after your word. 
We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Once again, we have a hard reality from Micah. He presents us with a dark picture of the corruption of God's people and the calamity that God will bring upon them as a result. As we look at this picture that Micah paints, we should try to see ourselves in it. When we look to find our own corruption, we can look to see how we can escape the calamity that would come through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, Micah gives us three vignettes in chapter 3. Three woes pronounced upon those who are wicked. The first thing that we see is injustice presented. That is, the injustice that comes from the governmental workers and the judges who know wickedness and take bribes and do not follow the Lord's law. Second, we see prophets for profit. We see those who prophesy and speak only for their own benefit and good. And then thirdly, we see perhaps the most dangerous thing. We see promises presumed upon by God's people. The people of God who have the promises of God, but forget the context that those promises come in. Injustice presented Prophets for profit, and promises presumed. Well, as we begin this chapter 3, I perhaps don't need to remind you that the prophets are not known for their subtlety. If Micah lived in our day, and if he were to speak like a normal person of our day, it would be a very awkward conversation. Have you ever tried to tell someone something in a subtle way, perhaps criticize them or to get them to, to change their behavior. You, you have this kind of awkward dance in which you, you try to make them admit where they're at fault or hear what you're saying without you saying it. And oftentimes we'll do things like this. We'll say, you know, I really struggle with this problem. Do you? Hint, hint. And we take it upon ourselves so that maybe they'll get the hint. But that's not how Micah works. He is the man who is literally outside of City Hall with a bullhorn. There is no mistaking what he's saying. There's no subtlety to his message. He says, hear, rulers. Hear those who are in charge. And he wants to make sure they're listening. This call to hear is a call to listen up. Pay attention. We almost would imagine if Micah were speaking and there were people busily walking to and fro in the city square, as they walk past him, looking down quickly, trying to pretend he doesn't exist, he would follow them with a bullhorn. You, I'm talking to you. Turn around. I've got something to say to you. Don't walk away from me. There's no mistaking the prophet of God. There's no getting away. From God's prophet. God will be heard through his prophet. Well, who then is Micah talking to? He's talking and addressing the civil magistrates of Judah. Those 
who were over the judicial system and the governmental system. Now, previously, in the first two chapters, he had been addressing the greedy rich who were actually committing the crimes. Now, he's turned his attention and set his sights on those who excuse those crimes or who help them to commit them. These are the people who are in charge, who could actually do something about the situation. As he says here at the beginning of chapter 3, Hear, you heads of Jacob. The heads were the leaders of the various tribes or clans or families in Judah. They were elders. They were men who were supposed to be men of proven ability. They were supposed to be men of proven wisdom. And then he addresses the rulers. The word here for rulers literally means the ones who decide, the ones who make the determination, those who have authority and make decisions. These were governmental officials appointed by the king over local and national courts. And the thing that these men had in common, Micah says, is that they were supposed to know justice in verse 1. Now, this is not just that they knew the law. It's not just that they could spit out verbatim the statutes of the Jerusalem Code to you. It's not just that they could tell you where the loopholes were and not. No, what it means when Micah says they are to know justice is that they were charged with making sure that justice was done. It was supposed to be their passion. It was supposed to be in their blood to make sure that justice occurred under their watch. But what were they actually like? Well, they didn't just fall down on the job. They actually worked for the opposite of justice. Now, you can imagine, we would not consider someone a good judge if he came in from his chambers, sat down in the chair, and promptly fell asleep. We would not consider that a good judge. However, that judge would be better than these judges. Because at least he would be asleep and would not cause harm. These judges are not only not standing for justice, they are working for injustice. They're doing the opposite. Micah's indictment of them stings. Look at it in verse 2. You who hate the good and love the evil. Now, they wouldn't have admitted that. If you talked with them, they would tell you all about how they had to be sure that process was going in a proper way. Or they would tell you they have a great commitment to the legal system. But Micah calls them out for who they are. He says, you actually hate what's good, and you love what's evil. Why can Micah say this? Because their actions speak louder than their words. And so Micah gives us what is perhaps one of the most shocking pictures in all of the Bible. This is a place where I am glad that the Bible is a book of words and not a picture book. I don't want to see this picture, especially before lunch. He tells us how shocking their behavior is. Now, these are civil servants, and when we think of that, I think sometimes we might even imagine in our minds that civil servants come into the building together and they say, after you, no, no, after you. Well, can I help you? No. How can I help you? After all, we're being civil and polite to each other. No, no, no. These aren't civil servants. They're cannibals. They're devouring the people. 
And the picture is gruesome. They are stripping off the flesh. They are chopping up the bones. They are creating a violent meal. This is no salad. This is a violent meal in which God's people are being devoured by them. Now, why does Micah give us such a shocking image? Couldn't he have been more delicate here? Just a little bit more subtle? A little bit easier on our stomachs? But that's the point. You see, these leaders were using polite society to support horrible injustice. They knew that society would allow them to get away with it because they would not be polite to call them out. It wouldn't be easy to criticize someone like this in public. And so they didn't think about what it was they were doing. So God is calling them out. God is telling them what they are doing. He's telling them to wake up and to repent. So what is the consequence for such injustice? When, when we see injustice, it makes us angry, doesn't it? Have you ever seen someone treated unjustly? You wish it was within your power to set everything right. You're angry about it. You want to tell other people about it. If you're like me, a week later, you're still angry about it. What we want is we want some kind of a solution. We want to fix it. We want to make sure it never happens to anyone again. So surely God is not going to ignore what they're doing, is he? Well, we get the answer here in verse 4. Then they will cry to the Lord. Now, this is not therefore. You all know by now what therefore, how it works, right? You look at the therefore, and then you look back to see what the therefore is there for. This then is the same way. We need to look back. When is the then? The then is chapters 1 and 2. The then is the time of judgment that God brings upon the peoples of Samaria and of Judah. The then are all of the things that God says he will do in chapters 1 and 2. And during this time of suffering and judgment, these wicked civil servants, these wicked judges, will cry out to the Lord. You see, these government officials might have thought that the disasters described in chapters 1 and 2 didn't apply to them. Their argument would be, well, I was just doing my job. I didn't actually steal the land. I didn't actually hit the old lady. I didn't actually toss the kids out on the street. I'm just doing my job as a civil servant. Well, you and I both know that that is no excuse for violating the law of God. It's not enough to say, well, I just felt compelled to sit by and watch murder. It's not sufficient. God tells them plainly that they don't escape his gaze. And so what they will do is they will cry out to the Lord. Now, this tells us something about the nature of corruption. These magistrates still keep the form of godliness without the power. These are not loudly professing atheists. These are not people who don't know who God is and don't care. No. Dale Ralph Davis puts it so well. He says, they may be crooks, but they're always in church for the national day of fasting and prayer. They want the superficiality of religion. They think that will protect them from God's judgment. 
But their cry, Micah tells us, is not an understanding cry. It's a cry of someone who wants help in trouble. There is no aspect of repentance to this cry. No aspect of sorrow. They're not sorry for what they did. They don't want to change what they did. They just want to get out of the pickle they're in. There's also an irony here. Micah uses a verb, cry out, that is also used as a technical term for what someone does when appealing to a judge when they're a victim. Do you see the irony there? The judge, who will not listen to the victim, now makes the same victim's cry to the judge of all and thinks he'll be heard. How preposterous is that? Their cry is self-centered. It is unrepentant. And so as a result, God will not hear them. That's what Micah tells us in verse 4. And so verse 4's language is not as shocking as verse 3's. But I think it's more terrifying. Because there is nothing worse that could happen to you than to have God reject you. To hide His face from you. It is the exact opposite of the ironic blessing that we give in the benediction. May the Lord's face shine upon you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you. And what will that bring? Peace. Right? Well, what happens when God hides His face from you? Actually, the exact opposite. Judgment. Well, the second corruption that Micah turns to are the prophets in verses 5 through 8. Now, we've seen Micah aim this way before in chapter 2. Micah rebuked the soft preaching of those who said that everything was fine and who complimented the greedy robbers. Now Micah gets more specific about the sins of the prophets. And there's an irony here. The prophet Micah is telling other prophets that they do not know their own job. Who were the prophets? The prophets were a group of men who came out of a school of the prophets founded by Elijah and Elisha. And so their job was to bring God's word to his people and to help the people. If you think about the lives of Elisha and Elijah, you know that that's what they did. They healed, they fed, they protected. They were to lead the people of God to God and to stand for truth. These prophets, however, only had their own interests at mind. Look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. They are leading the people astray. What that means is the people have more trouble than they started with. These prophets are supposed to be helpers and they're making the situation worse. Have you ever been lost and gotten directions from someone that didn't know where they were going? And you ended up even more lost? That's the situation here. They should be helping, and they're hurting. Now, why are they doing this? They cry peace when they have something to eat. They declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Why are they leading the people of God astray? Well, they're looking out for number one. Their first question is, what's in it for me? Do you want God's word? Annie up. And let's see how much there is, and then that'll affect what you get. Whoever feeds them perks, whoever gives them money, whoever pays the most gets the blessing. The 
peace, Micah talks about. But whoever does not give or cannot give, instead they are attacked. They have war declared on them. Now, there is nothing wrong inherently with the prophets being compensated for their services. The Old Testament is full of directives and examples of the prophets being compensated for their work. Paul picks this up in the New Testament in which he says, you do not muzzle the ox that treads out the grain. The worker is worthy of his wages. So there's, it's not that being free is more godly. That's not what's being said here. No. The problem is that the prophets determine by the amount they are given what the content of their prophecy will be. It doesn't have any connection to God's word. It only has a connection direct to their wallet. And how much they're given depends on what you hear. Now we see this today, don't we? So-called preachers say that if you give them more, you'll be blessed. And we see the opposite as well. If you don't give, your life will be horrible, and God won't bless you, and you'll be sick. What they do is they pervert God's word for their own gain. So what will God do about this? The answer is in verse 6, this time with a therefore. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. So the answer is there will be no vision from God. Those who have the vision will now have no more vision. God will not be used by them for their greedy prophet. He will bring darkness down over them. The sun will go down. The picture is one of confusion, embarrassment, and shock. Now they're used to having answers that they can manipulate for their profit. But now they have nothing. Can you imagine when a greedy robber baron comes up and he says, Prophet, please tell me what my life will be like and what I should do. And the response is, uh, You're going to have to give me a minute on that. I don't know. You're gonna Come back next week. I don't have an answer. You see, they're so used to having answers that are readily manipulated. But now they have nothing. There is a blackout. And access to God and His Word is lost in this blackout. In a sense, the calamity that falls on them is like that that falls on the judges. They seek God now that they're in trouble, and God is silent. Then they and the world around them will see what these prophets are really made of nothing. They'll be disgraced and put to shame. Now, we might ask, how could that possibly happen today? Don't we have copies of God's Word all over the place? Don't we have video Bibles, audio Bibles, internet Bibles, hard copy Bibles, a hundred different kinds of study Bibles? How could there possibly ever be a dearth of God's Word? Do not confuse copies of God's Word with having God's Word. God can take away your interest in His Word. He can take away your desire for His Word. This happens all the time, doesn't it? How many of us, or people we know, know more about fantasy football statistics than the life of David? 
Or how many of us watch cooking and travel shows and know more about meals and travel than we do the Psalms? Or Paul's letter to the church at Galatia? Don't take God's Word for granted. It's not enough to possess a copy of God's Word. You must long and desire to read God's Word. Now Micah concludes this section with a picture of what a real prophet looks like. And he points to himself. In verse 8 he says, But as for me, and this is emphatic, me, yes, I'm talking about me here, he says. He's setting himself off from all of the other prophets. Now this is not pride, but it's a picture of how God displays his power through a real prophet. Micah is a real prophet here. And this also implies that Micah is alone. That he's set against all the other prophets we see in verse 5. The, the job of a prophet is a lonely one. It is a challenging one. It is a difficult one. To stand for God's word and to tell others what God says is not a popular position. You are not a prophet and get voted most likely to succeed in the high school yearbook. So where does Micah get the power for his task at hand? Alone, to stand before the opposition. It comes from the Lord. Look at what's said here in verse 8. I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord. And the Hebrew is such here is, there's almost like you could put an equal sign between power and with the Spirit of the Lord. Power, namely what the power is, is the Spirit of the Lord. So when you're looking for power, don't look inside. Don't look at circumstances. Power comes from the Spirit of the Lord. God is the strength of His prophet and with His people. And so Micah then goes on to describe this work of the Spirit in three ways. He talks about power, that is, the ability to stand up to others and in discouragement. That's Micah's everyday life. Secondly, he talks about justice. He's been filled with justice. Now what does that mean? His commitment to the Lord and to God's standards of right and wrong are empowering him. He's filled with a sense of this. This makes him the exact opposite of those who could care less about right or wrong and only worry about their own pocketbooks. And then finally, he's filled with might. That is, he has the courage to stand up for truth. If we were watching Micah right now, we would say, he's got real guts. He's not afraid. He doesn't avoid conflict. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He's bold in his defense of the truth. Now, Micah and any real prophet, needs this. He needs it to do his job, which is to declare that sin is sin. You see that at the end of verse 8. His job is to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Now this is a real challenge for a pastor today. But it's also a real challenge for a Christian today. Because our culture has made it so that all of us are now on the front lines. The battles are being fought in workplaces, in schools, in neighborhoods. To stand for God's truth is a lonely job. It is a hard job. But God has promised to equip his people for the task that he has given to them. Trust in the Lord 
to give you the strength you need and the help to stand. Finally, in this chapter, Micah turns to the bad theology that allows these crimes to take place. He turns to an issue of promises that are presumed upon by those who have no stake in a relationship with God. And so he tells them that they have lost their sense of ethics. Now, if you don't know what ethics is, let me try and briefly describe it to you. Ethics is a set of moral principles that someone has. And for the people of God, it should be obvious that our ethics should come from God's word. That's where we should get our principles. And so here what we see in verse 9 are ethics that are completely ungodly. Once again, the heads and the rulers are called out. They detest justice. They make crooked all that is straight. They build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Now it starts with their attitude. They detest justice. They don't want any part of it. It makes them sick to their stomach. And then... Their attitude always leads to action. They make crooked all that is straight. There is nothing right that they won't ruin. Everything is made bad by their actions. And then their schemes for carrying these things out are violent and ungodly. Look at verse 10. They build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Now what does this mean? Micah is preaching in the days of King Hezekiah. And Jerusalem was undergoing a, a kind of a, a renaissance, a, a building program, uh, an expansion, a growth heretofore unseen. Because so many refugees from the north of Israel had come down into Jerusalem. The population of Jerusalem, by some estimates, has swelled by 30 to 40 percent. And so the king and the rich and the rulers have gone on an unprecedented building program of public works, of, of new buildings, of new neighborhoods. You could just imagine, everything is bustling and going. It's said that at this time, a, a project was made that allowed running water to come through Jerusalem. Now just think about the engineering that's involved with that. But how is this all being done? Who's doing all the building? And it turns out that what's going on here is the poor are being pressed into work. They're being enslaved, as it were, to build these projects, to do these things. So what you have to have in your mind is a picture of Jerusalem has become a mini-Egypt. What the Israelites suffered in Egypt under Pharaoh to have to build, to have to be enslaved, is now being done by their own people in the capital within sight of the temple. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what an affront that would be? How angry Micah must have been? How angry God is as he declares it. They're completely focused on their sell, themselves and on self-gain. All they care about is money, money, money. Look at verse 11. Bribes, price, money. That's all they want. That's all the focus. Now, how can this be? How could the people of God think they could act this way and escape the consequences? Now, this is where their bad theology comes in. Don't ever let anyone tell you theology is not important. Because we live in accordance with our theology. And the worse our theology, the worse we'll live. 
In verse 11, Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Now, let's be clear here. They are not opposed to theology. They are not rejecting God. They're not saying God doesn't exist. Instead, they're manipulating God and His Word for their own benefit. They're saying, Look, surely we're well. Look over there. There's the temple. God lives there. How could anything bad happen where God lives? We're living with God. He's promised to bless us. Only good things will happen to us. It doesn't matter what we do. This is not unlike centuries before. How when the Israelites went out to battle and they lost to the Philistines and someone got the bright idea and said, you know, we never lose when the ark goes out. Go get the God box. We'll show them who's who. As long as we got the ark, we'll win. It doesn't matter. It's the magic box. We get the ark, we win. And what did God do to them? The Philistines crushed them. And the ark was taken captive. Because God didn't care about the ark? Because God doesn't care about the temple? No, but because God wants us to know that He is not at our beck and call. He is not a vending machine where we put things in and get out blessings. It's about our relationship with God. You see, they were looking at the promises of God and they had forgotten the context of those promises. Those promises that say that God would bless them, that He would never leave them or forsake them. They come in the context of, if you follow after me, if you believe my word, if you are faithful, if you repent, if you believe, the context is in the relationship with God. And they had forgotten that. They thought the relationship didn't matter at all. That all that mattered was the superficial aspects. You see, we can do that too if we're not careful. Have you ever heard someone take a famous passage from the Bible in the context of talking about difficulties in U.S. politics? They say, you know, if my people will humble themselves and pray, then I will deliver them and heal their land. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, my people is not the United States government. And the land of God's people is not the North American continent. The people of God are God's faithful who trust in Him who are redeemed by faith and by grace, by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you humble yourself, and if you pray, God will heal His people. He will protect them. He will bless them. But it's not a political totem pole. You see, we need to understand that God wants us. He wants our hearts. Now, Once again, God has a therefore. There's a rude awakening coming to those who are trusting in these promises. And the rude awakening comes here in verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house a wooded height. Because these sinners have refused to repent and they've refused to forsake their sin, instead they're choosing to demand that God bless them, God has a calamity to bring on them. Zion will be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem will become a heap. And this should remind us of what God said in chapter 1 about Samaria, that it would be wiped out, that it would be only good for raising vines. 
because it would be destroyed beyond farmland. And he specifically mentions the temple. It's as if God says, oh, you think the temple alone is going to protect you? The mountain of the house, that's a reference to the temple, will become a wooded height. God's going to bring this about. Not once, but twice. Once in 587 B.C. and once in 70 A.D. Because the people who do not seek God, who do not repent, who do not trust in His Savior, they don't learn their lesson. Human nature doesn't change. They still think as long as they have the circumstances, they'll be blessed. Now we should look at this and learn If it happened to Samaria, if it happened to Judah, it could happen to us. We have to understand that God can carry out His plan without us. I have to tell you, God does not need the millions that the American church gives to missions to go forward with His plan. He will use the millions. But if the millions dried up, do you think missions would stop? Do you think the gospel would be gone? Of course not. Sometimes we confuse God needing us with our purpose in life. We think we're indispensable. And we lose sight of the Lord. And because of that, we lose sight of our need for Him. So, is there any hope? It's hard to listen to Micah, isn't it? If we hear Micah's word, if we look around us at the state of the church, we can despair because everywhere around us, the church is in dismay. It's compromising God's word for political gain, for popularity and influence, or for money. Corruption in the church is commonplace. How do we escape calamity? Well, we do it by understanding who God is. What is God doing here? God is speaking to his people. He is warning them about a coming judgment. In a sense, this is no different than sending Jonah to Nineveh. He's warning them about the judgment. And that warning is a mercy. Sometimes we can miss that. We get all upset because God seems angry and we don't want to hear this anger. But when God tells us the judgment is on the horizon, it's a mercy and a grace so that we might repent. God is calling us back to himself. He's calling us to repent. And that's exactly what this message did. In the book of Jeremiah, the 26th chapter, when Jeremiah is looking at a death sentence, someone comments in chapter 26, verse 18, that they should not put Jeremiah to death because Micah of Morasheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And he said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Does that sound familiar? It should. It's a verbatim quote from Micah 3.12. And then the question is put, did Hezekiah, king of Judah and all Judah, put Micah to death? No. Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? Jeremiah shows us that repentance and mercy and grace 
are possible. Hezekiah and the people of God repented. They turned from their sin and they sought the Lord. They knew they were undone without the mercy and grace of God. So what does this do for you and me? Why should you listen to Micah thunder against Judah and apply it to yourself? Because God is calling you today to see your sin. To see your hopelessness. Because that's the only way that you'll see your need for the Lord. It's only by acknowledging that you are a sinner and you don't have it together that you will run to the Savior. Jesus is here. Right now. God's grace did not fade away in the days of Micah. It's before you right now to take. Will you go to Jesus? Will you find the hope that you need? I pray you will. That's why Micah preached about judgment. It was so that sinners like you and me would repent and be saved. Let's pray.